0: Peter Levenheim is a journalist based in Rochester, New York, whose articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, and other publications. He teaches writing in the Department of English at Rochester Institute of Technology. Lovenheim holds a degree in journalism from Boston University and a law degree from Cornell. In addition to his most recent book, In the Neighborhood, which you all should have a copy of, He is an author of Portrait of a Burger as a Young Calf, a first-hand attempt to understand the food chain, as well as several books about conflict resolution and mediation. Please join me in welcoming Peter Lovenheim. I'm I'm really very humbled to be here today, and I didn't know everybody was gonna get a copy of the book. This is like, I feel like Chairman Mao here. (laughs) I spent three years just focused on what was happening on my own suburban street in Rochester, New York. And four more years after that, writing and rewriting the manuscript. And during all that time, I was challenged by many friends who said, well, why would anybody who doesn't live on your street want to read about these people? Or anybody who doesn't live in Rochester? And there was really no hard evidence you know, to come up with a good answer. So. To be here 3,000 miles from my home and receive this distinguished and generous award is just so gratifying, and I want to thank Greg from uh, Zocalo and all the staff, and Kimberly at the Southern California Gas Company for the support, and all of you for coming out. It's, it's really quite an honor. The, the suggested title for my talk tonight, I think, was What Makes a Good Neighbor? I'm not sure I have the credentials really to answer that question in great depth. I don't have the academic background. I'm not a sociologist. I didn't study urban planning or cultural anthropology. I'm just a journalist who saw something happen on his own street and got curious about it and tried to find an answer. So I think the best way I can try to answer the question about what makes a good neighbor is by sharing with you the story of this journey I took down my, down my own street. And at the end, I think maybe we'll come up with an answer. The truth is, until about 10 years ago, I wasn't thinking about neighborhoods or community much at all. Until a tragedy occurred on my street. There was a family down my street, a husband and wife, and their two kids, a boy 11 and a girl 12. And one night, the husband came home and shot and killed his wife and then himself. The kids ran screaming into the night. Very soon after that, the children moved to another part of our town with their grandparents. So in effect, this whole family, who had lived on my street for seven years, vanished overnight. And what struck me about this, besides the tragedy of it, was that I didn't notice that a lot changed on my street. The disappearance of the whole family somehow did not have much of an impact. I hadn't known the family well, just to wave and say hello. And in asking around, I found, really, that nobody else on the street knew them either. In fact, nobody seemed to know anybody on my street beyond a kind of casual, superficial level. So I asked myself, do I I live in a neighborhood or just in a house on a street surrounded by people whose lives are entirely separate from my own? Well, looking into this event more, what I learned is that on the last day of her life, my neighbor who was killed feared her husband. Their marriage was collapsing. And three times that day, she tried to reach by telephone her best friend who lived in another part of town, about 10 minutes away, perhaps to see if she could take her kids and stay over there that night. What she didn't know was that her friend was out of town that day on a business trip. So she did what she could. She, she stayed away from the house. She picked her kids up from school, she took them to a restaurant for dinner, she took them to the public library to do their homework, but then about 9 30 she brought them home, told them to go upstairs and get ready for bed and that's when her husband came home and the first thing he did was he, he built a fire in their living room fireplace and started burning their mortgage papers. Now I'm, I'm speculating here but I think If my neighbor wanted to get out of her house at that late hour with her kids and find a safe place to go, her options uh, were limited, because during the day, her husband had canceled her cell phone service, and uh, when he got home, he disabled her car. So I think her options were limited to going to any of the other 35 houses on our street, including mine. But she didn't do that. Perhaps she didn't do it because she didn't know any of us well enough to take that kind of risk. And thinking about that, I asked myself another question. In this age of cheap long distance and discount airlines and the Internet, when we can can create community anywhere, why is it that we so often don't know the people next door or across the street or on our block or in our apartment building? And what do we lose by living as strangers to each other? Well, I, st- I started by looking to see what people who study this, this kind of issue know about it. What are the reasons um, we're in this situation? And there are pretty good contemporary studies that show that, on average, Americans have 50% fewer meaningful contacts with their neighbors than they did 50 years ago. 50%. Fewer meaningful contacts than just 50 years ago. Now, there are exceptions to that. And I'm sure in L.A., as in my hometown, you can find great neighborhoods that people know each other, they work well. Um, But unfortunately, these are exceptions to this general trend. And the trend holds, by the way, across um, uh, geographic and economic lines. So what are the reasons for this? Well, sociologists come up with a number. Two career couples mean there's just fewer people home during the day. We spend more time in front of the television, on the internet, I certainly do. Uh, The built environment has changed. In the last generation, house sizes and lot sizes in suburbs have just about doubled. So we're further away from each other. Front porches have largely disappeared. Uh, Some of you who are my age would remember when, if you put a fence up in your backyard, it was considered a slightly hostile act. Now, today, new suburban housing construction often comes with fences already built. And then I think there's this pervasive fear of strangers. Uh, I teach writing at the college level. I have 18- and 19-year-old students, and I'm quite sure when they see somebody on campus who they don't know, particularly an adult, they're far more likely to assume that person is a potential threat than a potential friend, or someone in need of a friend. Well, this all didn't sit that well with me. I just didn't like the feeling of living among strangers. And I wondered, would it be possible to break through these social barriers and really get to know some of the strangers on my street beyond a superficial level? at some kind of meaningful level, where I could see what the full potential of a relationship might be. How would I do that? And if I could, how would it change the neighborhood, uh, if at all? Well, I kind of scratched my head over that for a few months, trying to figure out what my methodology would be. And then at some point, I remembered the experience of sleeping over at my friends' houses when I was a kid. And for me, the part I liked most was not actually the sleeping over it was the waking up the next day and coming down to breakfast with my friend and well I'm, I'm dating myself here this is when families had meals together right <laughs> but sitting around the breakfast table with people in my friend's family who previously were strangers to me like my friend's dad or his older sister let's say and I'd listen to the conversation and I would kind of get a sense of what that person's day was going to be about and what the relationships were between the members of that family. And then the next time I'd go over to my friend's house, I found it didn't feel like a strange place anymore. I kind of had a sense about what life was like inside that home. So, could I sleep over at my neighbor's house? Would anybody let me do that? The night I left for my first sleepover with a neighbor, my then 14-year-old daughter, Valerie, saw me about to go out the front door, and she said, Dad, you're crazy. <laughs> and I, and I, I get what she meant, because, you know, the sight of your middle-aged father with an overnight bag going to <laughs> sleep at the neighbor's house would be exquisitely embarrassing for any teen. I see that. But I didn't really think it was crazy then, and honestly, I don't now. What I think is crazy is that we've somehow gotten to the point in our society where it's entirely acceptable to live side-by-side, driveway-to-driveway, with other people for years, sometimes decades, without knowing really much about them. And there's no social stigma attached to that. It's entirely acceptable. That, I think, is crazy. Well, I'll just give you a quick sketch of some of the people I met through this social experiment, as I thought of it. My first sleepover was with an, an elderly gentleman, 81 years old, a retired surgeon named Lou Gazetta, who lived two houses down from me. Lou's wife had died five years earlier. His six children were all grown and living elsewhere. When I asked Lou if I could write about him for this, this book, he said, um, sure, you can write about me, but it'll be boring. I don't do anything. My life is zero. I do nothing. That turned out not to be true. In fact, I found Lou a fascinating person. We got to be very close. I actually came to love him. Um, and his story forms a lot of my story. My next sleepover was with, I tried to get some diversity in age, with the youngest homeowner on my street, um, a woman who was 32 and her husband. Um, They were very busy with their uh, businesses, uh, social life, sports. Uh, I liked including them in my story because I thought they represented a certain type of household today where people, you know, in theory might like to be closer to the neighbors, but they really didn't have the time for it at least at that stage in their lives. I stayed with a family at the other end of my street, um, a, a couple with their two teenage children. Uh, the husband there, Bill, um, grew up in the Midwest, in a small town. And he spoke nostalgically about the connections he remembered growing up in that Midwest small-town environment and how much he, he, he missed having that in, in, in our current neighborhood. I also tried to, um, to get the perspective of people who didn't live in my neighborhood but who came into the neighborhood regularly. Um, one of these was a woman named Grace Field. If you read the piece I wrote in the LA Times, I wrote about Grace. Remarkably, Grace walked through my neighborhood almost every day for 40 years. When I finally uh, introduced myself, for the book, she was in her mid-80s and she agreed to let me come to her home and and interview her. What I learned, among other things, was that as a young woman, Grace had studied at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. She was an accomplished pianist and harpist. You know, I thought, what a waste. If we'd only known her, maybe she could have given piano lessons to the kids in the neighborhood. She'd certainly been an interesting person to know. But at that point, it was nearly too late. I also, um, I also got up at 3 o'clock in the morning one day to uh, deliver the uh, morning newspaper with our newspaper carrier uh, to see what his perception was about our street. And later on, I, delivered, um, I accompanied our, our mailman when he delivered the mail. Part of that was because I realized it was probably the only chance I'd ever get in this lifetime to ride in one of those little mail trucks. You know? <laughs> one of the perks of being a journalist. Um, Ralph, the mailman, among other things, told me that you could tell a lot about the quality of a neighborhood by what people do with what he called misdirected mail. Uh, Misdirected mail is when you get a letter that's really addressed to somebody else down the street. Um, And the question is, do you walk it over to your neighbors or do you give it back to the mailman to re-deliver? Ralph had worked in four different neighborhoods in his career and he said he could tell a lot by how people handle misdirected mail. Well, then I met a young woman named Patty DeNitto. Patty lived three houses down from me. She'd lived there for three years. I didn't even know her name. Somebody told me she might be someone I'd want to contact. What I learned about Patty was that um, she was a radiologist who previously had diagnosed her own breast cancer. And on top of that, Patty had recently gone through a divorce and was now the single mom of two young girls. The more I got to know her, I came to understand that if there was anybody on my street who needed a supportive community, it was her. And at that point, the goal of my effort shifted. I I was no longer thinking of this as just a social experiment, but I wanted to see, would it be possible to kind of patch together a real neighborhood to support Patty? Because as her illness progressed, she lost the ability to drive. Where I come from, if you don't have a car, you really can't get anywhere. Um, She needed rides to doctor's appointments. She needed help watching her kids after school when she was delayed getting home. So the second part of my story is largely about my effort to try to connect Patty to some of the other neighbors who I'd already gotten to know. For example, the retired surgeon, uh, Lou, who I've told you about, who was in his 80s, I had learned from spending a lot of time with him that he liked taking care of people. Um, he had cared for his wife and her final illness. He'd cared for a few close friends. By personality, he wasn't someone to go out and volunteer, let's say at the Veterans Administration, but he did want to help somebody one on one. And as he said, his life was zero. He had nothing going on. But it was trickier than it might sound to connect him with Patty because as Patty's illness, uh, Developed she was drawing a tighter circle around herself who she would let in and and in Lou, though He lived only five houses down was a complete stranger to her So part of my story is trying to make those connections I'd like to read one um, Selection from my book before I close but before I do I'd also like to address um, a Larger question which is why do neighborhoods matter and what is what makes a good neighbor I think neighborhoods matter for a number of reasons. They matter because we're all mortal. We're all subject to health emergencies or crime emergencies. And there's just some times when a a friend even 10 minutes away is a friend too far. Only the person next door or across the street can be there quickly enough to help you. Or maybe you're the person who can help the neighbor. Neighborhoods matter because um, all our resources are finite. If, if somebody is baking a cake at night and sends their spouse to the supermarket at 10 o'clock to buy a six-ounce bottle of vanilla, as one of my neighbors told me she recently had done, that's just wasteful. It's wasting gas and energy and our valuable time. Better to borrow the vanilla or... Sh- or a cup of sugar, or a lawn equipment, from somebody nearby. It's, it's practical, it's economic, it's environmentally sound. Neighborhoods matter because neighbors can enrich our lives in ways we, we only know if we know them. I think about Grace, the woman who walked through my neighborhood every day for 40 years. You know, I kind of wish that, I don't know, if I'd taken piano lessons from Grace, knowing I was going to see her every day, I might have practiced more. And there's all sorts of ways neighbors can enrich our lives, but we have to know them to do that. And finally, neighborhoods matter because I think neighborhood is meant to be a fundamental building block of a healthy civil society. You know, early American settlements were built around a common green, a Zocalo, if you will, or a common meeting house. People, people knew each other, they talked, they, they, they were in relationship. And we're so divided in our society today. We, we divide ourselves by ethnicity and income and city versus suburb and red state versus blue. If we wanna repair the social fa- fabric of our society, a very good place to start is in the buildings, and you know, the apartment buildings we live in or the blocks that we live on. So what is a good neighbor? I would, say, I would say a good neighbor is somebody who rejects one of the pervasive myths of our society, which is that we should all strive to be autonomous, to rely on nobody, um, to take care of ourselves. I don't think we're designed biologically to be that way. I think we've evolved to, to be in relationship, to be dependent on each other, to take care of each other, to be connected. And I think when, when we are connected, we're actually happiest. I, I get a lot of letters from people in response to my book. One of them was from a gentleman in Florida. He talked about his experience during Hurricane Wilma some years ago. He said, the, um, the power went out. And everybody came out into the street. And he said he was so surprised that people on his street recognized him as a neighbor, even though he'd never met them. And then they were cooking together over kerosene stoves for a couple days, sharing stories, getting to know each other. And then the power came back on, the air conditioning started working, and everybody went back inside. And he concluded his letter by saying, I kind of find myself hoping for the next hurricane so we can all catch up. (laughs) But but you all know that this is uh, this experience it's very common uh, you know in response to natural disasters where I come from it's uh, it's usually about ice storms and sometimes one half of the street loses power but the other half has power and so the neighbors go over to the other side of the street and they actually you know they eat together sometimes they they stay overnight until the uh, the power and the heat comes back on and we had an ice storm 12 years ago. People are still talking about what a great experience it was. <laughs> so I think this notion of connectedness and, and you know being dependent sometimes is, is a real source of happiness for many of us. So I think a good neighbor is somebody who's willing to be at least a little dependent on each other. Uh, to watch out for each other, to have the others back. And the good news is, you don't have to sleep over to do it. You know, you can, you can just make a phone call, send an email, ring the bell. And, and I'm pretty sure if you do, you know, you'll find somebody on the other side who would welcome you in and like to make that connection too. So I... I'd like to conclude just by reading one selection from my book. I need to set this up a little so you understand it. I mentioned my neighbor Patty, the woman who was ill. From being inside her house, I came to realize that actually because of her illness and her divorce, she she never really finished furnishing her home. There were whole rooms that were bare. And one day I was over there, and she kind of casually mentioned that she would, might like to buy a new carpet for the dining room, maybe an oriental rug. Well, that rang a bell, because I remembered from being inside my neighbor Bill's house at the other end of the street that he had a very serious hobby collecting oriental rugs. He knew a lot about it. So that was enough to make a little connection. So one evening, Bill and I went over to Patty's house. We just sat for about a half an hour, talked about oriental rugs. And then Bill and I left, and we walked back to his house together. And that's where this section picks up. We had walked a long time together, but finally back at Bill's house, we said goodnight. The night was so pleasant, though, and after my conversation with Bill, I had a lot on my mind. So I continued walking. As I passed the other houses on my street, I found I was able to read the lights in many of my neighbors' houses. I knew why particular lights were on and what they meant. At the Odell's house, the bright light visible through a basement window meant Deb was probably working out. A light in the second floor study left on past midnight possibly meant she was preparing for a business meeting the next morning. At Patty's house, a light at the far end on the second floor usually meant someone, most likely her mother, was staying over to help and sleeping in the guest room. At Bill's, a light in the corner window on the first floor perhaps meant Bill was reading. And if the kitchen light was on much past 9 o'clock, it probably meant Bill and his wife were fixing the kids' lunches or dinners for the next evening. And at Lou's house, I knew the dim light on the second floor was a nightlight and meant Lou was in bed, most likely asleep. All these lights and others taken together formed a sort of constellation for me, a picture of my neighbors inside their homes, living their lives side by side with mine. Picturing myself as one point of light within that constellation was comforting. Comforting too, in what I admit may seem a bizarre way, was the thought as I walked home that I was also linked with my neighbors by what went on under our street. Some months earlier, i learned by chance that engineers for the town used a robotic video camera to inspect the sanitary sewer under the street for cracks. They did this once every 10 years, and by the courtesy of our town engineer, I was allowed to view the most recent archived films. On first impression, what I saw on the TV screen looked like a diagnostic video of the human heart. But instead of a cardiac artery, what I saw was the inside of an 8-inch iron pipe into which ran all the wastewater from the homes on my street. Water from sinks, dishwashers, toilets, and baths. By gravity, it flowed down the street, joined with the main line to a treatment plant, and then into the lake, where two miles offshore, it was discharged. On the screen, I saw a churning reddish-brown liquid. Bubbles and bits of paper occasionally floated by. It was a brown soup of shampoo, Dish detergent, food scraps, and everything washed off, excreted, and shed by the bodies of my neighbors and me. The ooze of our fleeting existences, the stuff of our middle-of-the-night fears, our own private river sticks. It was what we have most in common, our physical, mortal selves, mixed together under the street, flowing by natural force toward the immense cold lake." This dark mixing of our lives underground was matched, as I thought about it, with the more pleasing physical world we all shared above ground. It was something else we all had in common, I thought, this micro-environment of our street. Driving, we passed the same mix of linden trees and Douglas firs, the same arrangement of colonial Tudor French chateau, and contemporary houses, the same harp-shaped street lamps, walking... We walked on the same sidewalk, avoided the same uh, uneven concrete slabs. In the moment before we turned the corner, our gaze fell on the same houses across the street. On a summer night, if our windows were open, we fell asleep to the same sound of crickets. In the morning, we awoke to the same birdsong and din of distant traffic. We all resided, as it were, to go back in time before the neighborhood was developed, on the same farm, Our soil was the same, our rainfall was the same, our sunlight, snow, and pollen index were the same, and we moved through this same physical mini-world, most of us, daily, for years. Surely this shared physical environment, both below and above ground, bound us as neighbors. As I continued home, I reflected that whatever three years ago I had felt missing in my neighborhood didn't feel missing anymore. Thank you. much of what you said resonated with my youth. But I was curious if in the course of your, I guess, studies of the neighborhood, did you find that pets played any role in how people got along with each other? Having a pet walking your dog um, is certainly a, a plus, but not as much as I would have thought going in, actually. Um, I quote one of my neighbors in the book who says that she walks her dog, and she meets other people walking their dogs. And she says, what's frustrating is people introduce their dogs, <laughs> right? <laughs> but not always themselves. And 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 she said, I end up in having the same conversation ten times, you know, over a course of months with people, but never getting quite beyond that. So so dogs are good, not quite enough sometimes. Could you just take us through the the procedure you use? to get a neighbor to allow you to sleep over. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I probably should have mentioned that uh, because I didn't just ring the bell and say, can I sleep over, you know? What I did was quirky, but that would have been far over, you know? No, what I did is um, I I would contact people uh, by phone or email, sometimes just in person, and is it? Oh, okay. And, and, um, and, and just, you know, tell them, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer, I live on the street here, I'm, I'm writing a book about how Americans live as neighbors today, we live on the same street, would you mind, you know, would you be willing to talk with me about that subject? Um, and if they were, we might meet at Starbucks or some other place, have a conversation. We'd have a few conversations like that. And I might also ask to accompany them um, would they go shopping, <clears throat> maybe see where they work? And then at some point, I'd, I'd say that I would really like, if I could, to chronicle a 24-hour period in their lives, and, hey, maybe I could bunk overnight and you know start in the morning. Um, and by that time, we, we, we knew each other. So it didn't seem that odd, actually. The people who, who declined to participate. All, in all cases, declined right away. You know, and I understand that because I was writing a book and some people just have a, a higher need for privacy than others. So, you know, I mean, you just have to respect that. Um, but nobody actually said no to the sleepover once we had s- slowly gotten to know each other. You know, I mentioned also, um, some people ask, well, weren't your neighbors afraid of having you in the house? you know, and. They don't often think about it, but it, it worked both ways, you know, because <laughs> I was putting myself, I was, you know, allowing myself to become unconscious overnight in the home of my neighbor. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that the methodology works so well, because in the morning, <laughs> you know, we w- we'd wake up under the same roof, and there was a sense of having, you know, kind of made it through the night okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> And, and the quality and depth of conversation that following morning, and for the rest of that day, was always, um, you know, greatly enhanced from anything that I would expect to uh, develop in just a, you know, face-to-face interview at a coffee shop. I'd Like to know what did you do with the nightshirt that Lou gave you, and why do you think he gave it to you? I have the nightshirt. I wish I'd brought it, actually. <laughs> Have you ever slept in a nightshirt? It's very difficult, actually. You know, it bunches up and it twists. I don't know why they were so popular. Um, Lou gave me the nightshirt, I think, because we were developing a bit of a father-son relationship at that point. It wasn't stated, but I think he wanted to give me something. Yeah, well, I don't want to give away some of the story for uh, people who haven't read the book. But thank you for asking that. I'm glad to be able to talk about Lou. I was just wondering why you, th- uh, why you thought it took such um, a, a tragedy or a crisis to break down the social barriers to bring the community together. I don't think that the tragedy on my street did break down any, any barriers um, by itself. That's, that's what initially caught my eye. It didn't seem to have much effect. Um, it had an effect on me because I was just curious about why the disappearance of this family seemed to pass you know, so casually almost. What other ideas did you consider other than the sleepover to you know, meet your neighbors? I really thought about it for several months and when I hit on the sleepover thing, it just felt right. I didn't know whether it would work. I mean, I really didn't know. But um, the first person turned me down even for an interview. Lou was the second. And uh, it worked really well with Lou. And that gave me sort of encouragement. I live in a neighborhood in Hollywood where there's actually a couple homeless people who live in the neighborhood on the street. Now, let's say this was reversed, and these two homeless people are technically neighbors, were to go over to everybody's house and ask them if we could stay there overnight. Do you think the perception would be much different? Well, let me let me turn the question back. What what would you do? I would. I I personally would offer them to stay there. But that's me personally. I live in a kind of in the house where a lot of these houses are kind of it's an upper middle class neighborhood. Yeah. If and maybe this is a cynical view on it. If I were to look at it, I would think most people want. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is interesting that the uh, among a younger generation, I think that the, the notion of s- sleeping over is, is uh, you know, has a kind of different sense to it, um, like this whole thing with couch surfing, you know, having people just, strangers, stay overnight on your couch, essentially. Um, so I don't know, I don't know really how to answer that. I, I don't, Certainly, I presented myself in a respectable way and was a homeowner on the street, so I presented much less of a threat, I suppose, than uh, many other people might. I was wondering, uh, after you wrote the book, uh, did you give any copy to your neighbors, and if you did, uh, did it change anything in the neighborhood or not? Well, I gave copies to everybody who had participated with me in the book. We had a a party, uh, and... I, I. uh, I think the, the publication of the book has had some effect on the neighborhood, I'm glad to say. Um, I, you know, It's hard to quantify it, but um, the people who I got to know and wrote about got to know each other from reading the book, um, and those connections have been made. We have a neighborhood association that previously, um, the only thing they really did was have an annual picnic. Um, I can tell you, by the way, that from what I've learned going around the country and hearing about neighborhoods. Doing an annual event in a neighborhood tends not to be very useful. Um, the successful neighborhoods seem to do things more more regularly, monthly, um, sometimes even weekly, um, or having holidays together. But um, in my neighborhood, the neighborhood association has now now does a monthly um, women's night out and guys' night out. You know, to a restaurant or to someone's house. And this past 4th of July, they organized a children's bike parade where the kids rode their bikes around a fire truck provided by the town. So those, I think, are you know, healthy, positive changes. I live in the L.A. area, and driving around, like some of my friends are like, oh, don't go there, that's a bad neighborhood. Or just don't go there. Or well, Yeah, but <laughs> do you think that's some of the reasons why people are fearful for... Even like being in a neighborhood, or even going outside, just because you know everybody's saying it's bad. I've I've had the opportunity to speak in in a lot of different um, neighborhoods since the book came out last year, um, and you know my neighborhood's kind of upscale, um, but w- when I speak about this subject in similar neighborhoods, you know there's a lot of kind of an academic interest about it. But I find that when I speak in, um, in neighborhoods that, that deal more with uh, conditions of poverty, uh, people are... Uh, their interest is, is, seems not to be academic. It's, it's, it, it has to do with issues of safety. You know, the, the cohesiveness of their neighborhood, knowing each other, um, having each other's back, you know, it are very real issues. And, and so I think for that reason that this uh, concept is just as important in a a low-income neighborhood as, you know, or maybe more so than in an upscale neighborhood. So I release everybody to the reception. Thank you so much.